brain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll, Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now, now, now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. We're here once again to look at the arts, the culture and the people of East London. But it's stuff that will resonate way beyond just this small corner of the world. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise. Plus lots of guests on tonight's show. The studio is looking very busy. Uh, we have music from Ruben Holobon a bit later on. And we'll also be speaking to the creative director of one of East London's most well-known and well-loved theatres theatres, um, the Hackney Empire. And hello from me. We'll also be hearing uh, another experience of arriving in London from the Something to Declare series. Plus we have Clen, uh, Ken Flaherty from the Doom Gallery, plus two artists who are having an exhibition at the gallery very soon. And now with us in the studio is filmmaker Winston Witter. Hi, Winston. Hello. Good evening. How are you? You have been on the show before. I have, yes. And um, we talked about the Four Races film that you have been working on for a while. I thought that was done and dusted. What's going on? (laughs) Um, I think this project now is like 19 years in the making. Um, I made it uh, back in 2007. Um, That was when I finished shooting and started editing. Um, and had a rough cut. And this rough cut, I started screening. And um, the film wasn't really ready to be released because I hadn't had the funding that I needed to make all the, get all the clearances I needed done for archive and film and uh, audio. Um, so I've been showing the film, trying to get interest and gather up you know, um, whatever finances I could that way. Um, gathered up a lot of interest, but uh, never ever got any finance. You know, I've done a, uh, endless amounts of uh, film funding and things like that, and haven't been successful, unfortunately. It's not my strongest point, but I am trying, and I've been working with uh, with, with others. Um, and so it's kind of been, you know, dormant over the last few years, and trying to make changes to sort of bring the cost down of what I need to uh, clear the rights. So this is Legacy in the Dust, the film that we're talking about, and it's the story of. The kind of the history, really, of the Four Races Club in Dalston. Can you tell us a bit, uh, very kind of brief synopsis of of the story of this club and why it's so important that this film needs to come out? Um, the story of the Four Races Club uh, goes back to uh, the early sixties, and it was founded by Newton Dunbar and three other partners. And uh, Newton decided to to continue the club um, and uh, ran it for sort of over like thirty odd years. And the history of the club is just incredible in terms of the artists that performed there and visited there. So people like Benny King, uh, Desmond Decker, um, the Pioneers, you know, like loads and loads of bands performed there. And uh, very important history to Hackney uh, in many ways uh, because it was a hub, you know, for a lot of artists and musicians to come together. Um, and also it influenced quite a lot of happenings around Hackney as well. Uh, you know, you had Centerprise Bookshop and you had the um, the African Centre, which was a few doors down. And um, 
you know, through the influence of the four aces, a, a lot of things came about, like when Ray Walker decided to do the mural. You know, they went, they went to the Africa Centre and the four aces to get ideas together and get people together to get involved in that. So that mural was kind of, in a way, uh, you know... Uh, kind of very closely linked to the four aces just just for people who don't know it's a it's a big very colorful mural just um next to the curve garden um just opposite i guess uh that square dalston square which the club no longer exists um it's now a kind of residential area with uh dalston library and the the overground station um so that that mural is a kind of representative of uh, an era, I guess, of of when you know music was very vibrant in the area, but it, it still is. There's, there's, you know, there's been a long-lasting history of of music in Dalston. What was? Do you think the Four Aces Club was kind of the beginning of that? Um, yeah, I think it was one of the sort of pioneering venues of the time. Um, I mean, before it was actually called the Four Aces, it was called a number of other clubs: the Macador, um, the Ramblin Rose. And those happened before uh, Newton took on the venue. So a guy called Charlie Collins took on the venue before him. And um, I think Stevie Wonder performed when he had it as the Matador, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's one of the first venues of its kind, really. It, it kind of outlasted many other venues that were sort of happening around that area, uh, in Arcola Street and, and, and sort of neighbouring streets around. Um, but it's just it's such a unique story because it goes all the way from you know, the Scar, sort of blue beat, rock steady days, reggae, dub, lovers rock, all the way through to Acid House, drum and bass, you know, and then sort of soul, hip-hop. So it kind of, you know, just uh, went through all the genres of music as the genres were sort of being created. So that's quite an interesting chapter that is probably more relevant to your generation, I guess, is when, when it became this rave club called Labyrinth. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Labyrinth um, is an amazing outfit and, and the time I, I remember at the Four Aces when Labyrinth was there was just, a, those are my most memorable moments really of going there because I was allowed to go there, I was old enough to go there because previous to that my dad had worked there in the 80s and so did I as a kid. So I saw it through a young child's eyes but I was too young to really enjoy it and that was with the reggae days. So I sort of revisited the club and I remembered that Newton, you know, was there. And, um, yeah, I went to a few Labyrinth nights and it was packed. I mean, it was, you know, Joe, I think they had about maybe four to 5,000 people a night because they ended up taking over the whole of the Dawson Theatre because the Four Aces was just the entrance to the theatre. So those nights were incredible because there was about 10 different rooms and they had about three or four different sound systems. You know, your hardcore, your sort of happy house, uh, you know, jungle... You know, and then you had all your, your top DJs, which are still around now, like, you know, Billy Bunter and Kenny Ken and DJ Slipmat. All those guys were there. And, uh, yeah, those, those were good nights and days because, uh, you know, those raves would go on until six in the morning. I mean, I've, there's some footage that I've found and there's people leaving and it's daylight. You know, which, which was rare in those days for clubs to have a late license. So I think that was kind of exceptional for the time to have, you know, raves going on in us in the middle of the city um, till 6 a.m. Yeah. So an exciting time. I think um, I think, yeah, Newton's probably I don't know, it's like the only sort of uh, club owner to have uh, had a six o'clock license for a sort of, I don't know, somewhere over 20 years. And when he shut the club, he still had the six o'clock license. And that's not many club owners could 
have that license all that time and, and go through what he went through, you know. So um, very quickly, the, the club eventually did shut down with a lot of uh, con- controversy around it. Um, so the, the film is about the, the life of the club, but also the kind of death of the club and what happened afterwards. Um, so what, why, what do you need the money for? What, what, what needs to be finished? Where, where are you going with the film now? Um, well, the film's been cut, um, and it's just running just under 100 minutes. And um, what I needed finances for is to pay for archive photos. So I've got some pictures from Dennis Morris and a few other photographers. And uh, there's, about, there's about six songs that I need to get cleared as well. There's certain songs I'm using to represent um, certain stories within the club, um, poignant moments, um, so they're really important because they're kind of like story specific uh, to the film, you know. And then there's footage as well. There's a, a whole bunch of archive footage that I need to get clearances from. That's from like BBC, ITV, Channel 4, um, just to sort of help recreate the atmosphere of, of the club. You know, there's certain elements, some bits were shot there. There's a whole bunch of stuff I shot there, uh, which has now become archive. So... Um, it's just filling in those gaps. So I just need those archives to help tell those stories and to really give you a visual, you know, all the way from the 60s um, up until until about the 80s. And then after that, I'm pretty much covered footage-wise. So that's what I need the money for, to clear that and then to um, finally sort of like do the, the final audio dub and grade, picture grade for the film, mastered, and then I can start to put it out. After 19 years, long journey. <laughs> yeah. Um, so hopefully we've got people excited about the film. How? What you? How, what's the fundraising? What are you going to do to to get? How can people contribute to to fund the film? Um, well, I'm just about to launch a um, crowdfunding campaign with uh, Indiegogo, and uh, the launch date for that I'm, I'm aiming for the fourth of July. So it's pretty soon, and I'm just preparing everything for that. So. Um, people can visit the website for the four races, which is um, legacyinthedust.net. And uh, on the news page there, there will be a link uh, to the Indiegogo crowdfunding page so people can then make donations. So I've got some really good rewards and you know, incentives for people. So I'm not just asking people to give me money just for, you know, just for a credit, but there's actual product, there's actual things that people will be able to get, obviously including the film. But there's lots of little bits of memorabilia and artwork and things like that. So, um, yeah, that'll be uh, kick-starting in uh, the 4th of July. It'll be on for a couple of months. So. Well, no, let's get... Shouldn't get people confused. It'll be Indigo going because it's not on Kickstarter. It's yeah. on Indigo going. <laughs> Indigo going. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. all right, cool. Yeah. Thanks, Winston, so much for coming in and telling us about that. And hopefully, you know, this will kind of get people interested and wanting to, to get involved and have a little piece of, you know, history. And it's, it's a really important project. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so next up, uh, Eastcaster Katie Haler went along to Grow Hackney, uh, a music venue and bar with a difference on the Hackney Wick Canal side. Katie gets to know the Apathy Band and talk to band members about their new album, which is called, it's quite topical, A Letter to Michael Gove. I've come to Hackney Wick to check out what's on at Grow Hackney, an experiment in ethical and sustainable business. Tonight, Grow at Grow, which happens every Thursday. I'm going to go see what it's all about. Testing. 
Testing, testing. Featured tonight, the Apathy Band. In Groves Beer Garden, I asked our education campaigner and band member, Barb and Roberta Smith, what motivated the Apathy Band's curious title. I was in a band called the Ken Hardy Playboys, and, uh, and the idea of that was that we could hardly play. And uh, then after a while, um, you know all the songs that you've devised, and you can't be bothered to rehearse. <laughs> and, uh, and it morphed into the Apathy Band. But it's turned into something else now, which is a kind of, want of a better word, phrase, a kind of like an ambient jam band. But the recent manifestations is to try and make it quite funky. So this backdrop is pretty spectacular. Was it the canal side that attracted you to this part of London? No, we were, I've been in Hackney Wick. Reuben Jacobs, one of the four founders of Grow, told me about how it became based in Hackney. Negotiating, but no, we've been in Hackney Wick, it's just because I was looking for a studio, I used to have a, um, a graffiti business in uh, quite long, about 10, 12 years ago. Um, but yeah, once you come to Hackney Wick, you realise that um, even though no, in those days it was mainly scrapyards and sort of quite a off the beaten track part of London, but when, when you get here, you realise you see the, you know there's several canals, the River Lee, um, yeah, the marshes, Victoria Park, and now you've got the Olympic Park. But I mean that wasn't there in those days. But so that it is an attractive feature. Yeah. So when we first, when we came out here. Um, it, looking at the back of this warehouse, it was yeah, it was. A, I could picture it, yeah, what it could be like. It's like our tagline: an experiment, an ethical and sustainable business. And the experiment is: is it possible to be, you know, to not go bust and be ethical and sustainable? And how? What are the choices you have to make? How ethical and sustainable can you be? Jessica Borsanger, and I am the lead vocalist for the Apathy Band. Well, it was amazing to actually be able to perform to the canal. We're right on the side of the canal. So there was a nice group of people who were our audience, and then we had people going by on the other side on bikes, people looking, and, and it's a really different experience performing when you're outside and you have a very different kind of um, audience. When the audience isn't, hasn't come specifically to hear you or to see you, do whatever it is you're doing. Uncertainty is inevitable in the experimental nature of Grow Hackney. I spoke to another co-founder, Jordana Greaves. So, like any good experiment, things can go wrong as well as right. Do you have any any learning experiences from that point of view? Well, um, tonight, for example, we've got the amazing Apathy Band, um, and we've realised that our drum pedal has uh, gone walkies. So, actually, a couple of people have gone out into Hackney Wick, trying to contact all the drummers that they, they know, and see if they can source the materials we need to do to put on the performance. And I have no doubt that we will find them. Uh, so, yeah, we, you know, sometimes, you know, we were a bit impromptu, a bit improv. Um, I say we don't have investments, so our, we're all relying on each other to put these, put, put these things on. So, I'm sure we'll find it, and I'm sure they'll turn up, and the performance will go on. And, as you'll be pleased to hear, it did. Not just in locating wandering drum pedals, but in so many ways, community seems to be at the heart of Grow. I had a chat to regular patron and Hackney Wick artist, 
Michael. It's kind of like, you know, it's very intimate little scenarios where you do get to intensely learn something that you can then talk to other people about and it rotates. So next week it might be something completely different. But that same kind of vibe of like re-energizing an area with, with ideas rather than physical things, you know. So you get to learn about how you can really just make small little differences. But when everyone does it, you know, it does add up to stuff, you know. Yeah, it's, it's very much a locals pub. But more than that, the locals come here because it's ethically viable. Not to an extreme sense, not that like, I won't drink at this place or that place because they don't recycle their glass. Not really that, it's more that, you know, uh, to give you an example, though, Tom, uh, one of the owners, he sponsored, I, I mean, I everyone around here is an artist, and they put 20 grand in a couple of years ago to help pay up the recycling bill for Hackney uh, Open Studios, which we couldn't have done because the council's been trying to shut it down for years. You know, so without that kind of help, we wouldn't be able to have our open events, our open studios. Without the open studios, they wouldn't have, you know, as many locals that come around that are as that keen. All the signs are made by artists, you know, it's all kind of, it's a cycle of people just helping and helping and helping, which is, you know, the very kind of etymology of community, you know. Uh, I'm Lina. Uh, I'm the founder of Hard Life magazine, which is an electronic music magazine, and it's going to be our first event thing. So Grow is actually the perfect location to do it, because it's like Hackney Week has been first place I've been to, I've been living in a warehouse for a long time, so I really feel like it was essential to do it in Hackney Week, because this is where everything started for me, for all my friends here, and from, for Hard Life as well. You know, I've been here before Grow was existing. This place was nothing a year ago, and now you can look at it. It's like fantastic what they're doing. It's very interesting to have this kind of thing, Hackney Week, where the rent is going up and where people and artists are very struggling to live here still. And I think it's a nice fresh air to this area, and I hope that it's going to stay here for a long time. After their acoustic set, with audience percussion participation, and before heading inside for the main gig... I asked Apathy's Barbara Roberta Smith what lay behind their new album, A Letter to Michael Gove. It's mostly about it's mostly about advocating the arts. I wanted I wanted the ideas to get out there in an oral form. I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. And making an album, it seems sort of a retro in a way, but we'll put all the material online so people can just download it. Uh, but the idea is to just get those thoughts about art and art in schools out there to a broader community. So before we go and rejoin the music, if there were a couple of events people have to come to, what are they? Well, we have a weekly jazz jam and trio, um, that's every Wednesday. We have a monthly beat, bop and blues live uh, performance, which is the last Friday of the month. And of course, every Thursday we do some kind of artistic performance. Uh, next month we're likely to have a da-da night, uh, that'll be the first Thursday. Uh, they're always free, come down, uh, get involved, check our website. There will be participation and, and good times. So. And as you can tell, it's really, really good for the overground. Thanks very much.
So that was a report by Katie Haler and um, she asked me to mention that A Letter to Michael Grove, um, the Apathy Band's new album, is out this August. And also a little plug for Bob and Roberta Smith and George Lionel Barker, also mentioned in the piece, who have their own show here on Resonance FM called uh, Make Your Own Damn Music. So hello to them. Um, now with us in the studio is singer-songwriter Ruben Holobon, who released his debut LP, Terminal Nostalgia, just a few weeks ago. Ruben, thanks for coming in. We'll chat to you in just a moment. But what are you going to play for us first, just by way of introduction? Oh, good evening. Uh, I'm going to play Faces for you. Okay. Take it away. We dropped our skulls to the floor just to stop you from talking It's been days since the Lord Such a fever should talk At the foot of it all There's a test that shouldn't be But then we see the back album's out tell us about it mm, it's called terminal nostalgia it's kind of a collection of songs that um, 
they've been spinning for a while and as they do they all come together and I was like right time to uh, make this first album and uh, you don't realise when you embark upon it how colossal an effort one of your own albums is um, I spent some time making albums for other people and they come along with this material and they make it seem so easy and for me it's been a it's been quite a beautiful challenge and you wrote some of it on uh, an old boat in Hackney, is that right? <laughs> uh, on, on a boat that I was living on that was kind of drifted in its way from Paddington uh, all the way over to Hackney. And so I spent quite a long time sort of lounging around in the area and then getting to the studio in the day and coming back in the evenings and mm-hmm. experiencing Hackney like that. And has uh, elements of that found its way into the album? Uh, probably the boat more than the town. Okay. But, um, just that sort of lifestyle of... Uh, no electricity, no internet, and uh, a fire and some and an mm. oven. That was kind of the entertainment. And you mentioned working with other people. Mm. Um, so before becoming a, a singer-songwriter, you were a music engineer for a long yeah. time. You worked with some big names like Nitin Sawney. What prompted the switch over? The songs. Mm. I, I found myself with loads of songs, and uh, they just built themselves over you know over the years from being inspired by everyone else. Because um, I've countless people that have um, shown me how they like to express themselves, and you just find yourself not not copying as such, but almost paying tribute or being inspired by other people. And once I had all of those together, it, um, it became a must. Um, and it probably took about four years of going, nah, this is a silly idea, um, mm. until it started to wrap itself up towards an album. And you were picked up by uh, a US-based label, yes. Brighton Tenet, and uh, you've toured over there as well. Mm-hmm. So how, how, did, how did your music, from you know, the boat in Hackney uh, over to the US, how did, that, how did you go down over there? Well, you, you've got the instant advantage of somehow being exotic by mm. being English over there. Um, but more it's... Um, I think they're very accepting to a, a lot of different music, just like we are in England, and um, that they've got so many different places that you can make a career just being big in a couple of states and it it allows music to flow quite easily because there's so many different markets Mm. um i think they're very welcoming and i spent so much time going to see other bands you know it's it's, when you can go and make your own music and spend time watching other bands play it's you know it becomes a bit of a beautiful life Mm. Um, and I, I saw you perform at uh, St Pancras Old Church uh, in King's Cross. What's the sort of appeal of s- some of these more kind of unusual spaces like that? It's not a normal kind uh, of we, gig venue. For me, I, I wanted to do a show, and um, people just recommended playing there. It wasn't, mm. <laughs> it wasn't particularly like. I actually quite like the uh, a proper venue, you know, where you can be a little bit louder and a bit more raucous. Mm. Um, yeah, the the. the but it was good, good atmospherically. It was I, think, good. I think so. I think so. Um, so the album uh, Terminal Nostalgia is out now. What's mm-hmm. next for you? I hear Glastonbury is on the cards. We've got Glastonbury, Blissfields, uh, Cambridge Folk Festival, Festival Number Six, and then I'm on tour in America supporting Joseph Arthur. Okay. And hopefully, I'm just waiting for confirmation on tour in Europe and uh, England for the rest of the year. Oh. Not much, not much going on. Then. Should be good. Should be good. <laughs> um, so, where can people hear more from you? Oh, all, all of your good digital record shops—they're um, <laughs> everywhere now. Um, but I, I mean, I'm certainly hoping to be playing back in. I mean, I played London last week, but hopefully, we can get some more shows lined up this summer. Okay.
Well, thank you so much for joining us. I don't think we've got time for another track. Unfortunately we? not, but we will play something from your um, album. album at the end yeah, of the show. Thank, thank you. you so much for thank joining you. us. So, um, as I do have a, um, a mention of a gig that is happening um, very soon in London. Um, for those who are listening uh, a few months ago, and also last month, um, so Anna Zed came and performed for us uh, a few months back, and she'll be launching her new EP um, with Louise, uh, Louise Welby, who was on the show last week, um, who played us an exclusive of some new material that she'd got together and it didn't her her new duo didn't have a name it now has a name it's called my bones and they'll be both playing at the troubadour um this friday on the the 10th of june so you're listening to east Coast show on resonance 104.4 fm and don't forget you can get in touch with us on twitter and facebook at east Coast show and you can listen again to our interviews and music online on iTunes and at eastcastshow.com or sign up for our monthly newsletter and you'll get all our audio news straight into your inbox. Now, in the studio, I have with us um, Ken Flaherty uh, from the Doom Gallery and two artists from uh, an upcoming exhibition, Echoes of Accra. I'm going to play you a clip from um, their exhibition because a lot of it is sound. There's a sound installation. So we're going to hear a little bit of sounds from Accra and then uh, we'll, we'll talk to the artists as well. My name is Aisha Lalu. I currently work for a social housing provider in East London called Poplar Harker and I work in resident empowerment. I'm not from East London originally, but I am a lifestyles and trying to be rich and famous and we had a slight technical glitch playing the wrong thing there um so moving away from london to accra with the influence of i don't a lot of western culture i guess you know with the lifestyles and trying to be rich and famous and being respected respect was equated to be having money um the selling off of the land just started the chiefs and some of the family heads have sold off the family land so that they could profit the main thing was about having money to live a high lifestyle, to live and be respected in society. Because unfortunately, in this society, you are respected usually because of what, how much money you have and how much influence, you know, how much you can sort of influence the system to work for you. So it became a little bit of a selfish thing for people to just, okay, so I need to better my life, which means I need to sell off the property. We had many people 
come in some pretending that they had bought bits of the land so people would sort of say oh i bought this land in 19 so so and so and i've forgotten the boundaries um and so they would like to sort of shift the boundaries um, um some people have tried to actually sell this part this part of the land somebody came and said he was an agent for the family and sold the land off tried to sell this portion a portion of the land off fortunately the person that they were selling it off to knew my mother and he said so that was a little snippet from and we'll hear more about um, the exhibition uh, that that's from a little later on but first we have Ken with us from the Doom Gallery welcome Ken thank you very um, much can I just correct you on one thing it's yes. not the doomed it's doomed gallery it's just doomed it's yeah, not sorry. the doomed okay <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, because obviously that wouldn't, that wouldn't be very be good. Weird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So tell us about Doomed. Okay. Well, Doomed, um, well, basically, I live in a warehouse and I've converted it, half of it into a gallery. And uh, essentially, it's been an experiment and it's been quite a, quite a journey. Last year, we had something like about 42 shows. So we run a sh- nearly a show a week. And um, we, we're basically a platform for young emerging photographers and artists. Not so much artists in that sense, but lens-based media. And in, we're moving more towards sounds now as well. So we're a, we're a venue that sort of gives exposure to young DIY and all sorts of people are now attracted to us. We've got a, what I'd like to think is a cult status. Getting there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't know about us, but anyway. Um, so you um, started in print as well? You, you, you did some print, print stuff or have I completely no, no, misunderstood no, that? not at all. I okay. mean, I used to be working advertising as a photographer. Right. And this is my sort of redemption, really, is to sort of create a space that's exciting and fun to be in, which is really essentially the essence of what Doomed is about. It's not a space that you go in and you just pay homage to works of art on the wall. It's a place where you go and you connect and you enjoy and you share and, uh, and network and just have fun, dare I say that word. We're allowed to have fun. Um, you are on Ridley Road, which is quite a special place. For it those that don't know Ridley Road, can you describe it a little bit? Ridley for us? Road is essentially um, an, one of the oldest markets, I think, around in London. It's, it's essentially it's African and Turkish and. Um, Afghanistan is not a lot of traders there now. They all seem to work quite harmless, uh, sort of in, in harmony. This cleanest street in London. It gets washed twice a day in the evening, and a lot of people have a negative vibe about Ridley Road. But it's it's almost like the Lower East Side of 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 London. You know, it's like a, it's got fantastic skies, big open skies. I always feel like I am elsewhere, and yes. I think that's what's lovely about yeah. it. It is like. You're in a different city somehow. Absolutely. And there are lots of different languages around and different kind of street cries. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, you know, there's, you're, there's, you're, you're somewhere else. There's you're, a lot of street life going on. Yeah. yeah. So um, we are going to talk about an exhibition that you've got coming up called yep. Echoes of Accra. Um, and Tony and Matthew, you are 
there's quite a few of you involved in this exhibition. So, so how many are there's you? There's four of us. Okay, yeah, yeah. so there's half of you <laughs> here, and we heard a little snippet um, earlier of from from this uh, exhibition. So, can you tell us um, how this came about? So, you went to Accra and. Yeah, well, well, we're four architects, actually, so this is really exciting, having the opportunity to be involved in Ken's Doomed Gallery uh, and actually bring ourselves out of our comfort zone and, and actually maybe try and explore some of the ideas that we got to challenge or we thought about when we started architecture and maybe in the real world of buildings we, we don't get the chance to think about. So this was a kind of exploration for us, really. So you obviously had to go to Accra and, and discuss, had you been there before? Was this a completely new experience? No, no. This, the, we, we wanted to try and challenge some of the conceptions that we normally deal with um, when looking at Western cities and the idea that cities like London, Paris and New York, Tokyo, these are the cities that are at the forefront of development and we should be looking to them. And we wanted to completely turn that on its head and say, well, we're not having such a great time here dealing with migrancy, dealing with increased population, housing our population, finding people jobs. Maybe better solutions can be found elsewhere. And maybe in a place like Accra, people are suffering these issues more acutely and they're being more creative about the way they respond to them. So what did you find when you got there? How different is it? What, what's the, what is it like? I, you know, I've never been. I don't know what Accra's like in any way. Um, well, we found we were very naive, <laughs> which, okay. was, which was exciting, I suppose. Um, but the, the main difference was um, it, it's a social city and a lot of the things that we take for granted that make this city work that we rely on in terms of services, local government, um, people in Accra just rely on each other and everything works like that, down to the public transport, down to your services, down to your schooling, down to your shopping. It, it all works based on relationships between people. And it's, a, it's an incredibly liberating experience being there for a while because you just feel in touch with humans, if you know what I mean. Well, that's interesting because, um, you know, especially in Western cities, that the big problem that we're finding, which is, is uh, as the population grows, uh, isolation is growing and people are feeling more and more isolated the bigger the city becomes in the West. That obviously doesn't seem to be a problem in, in kind of big African cities. So what can we learn? How can we kind of take note of, of how, you know, social interactions work and how, you know, people are are actually dealing with each other and aren't so lonely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to, to, to take concrete lessons necessarily from from one trip to to one African city. But I think um, what, what we did learn is um, is that there's a sorry, I've gone a little blank. Um, I, I I guess yeah, it's difficult to learn. If I was going to give one lesson, it would be be don't panic. Actually, you know. Things, things can be in major flux around you, yet actually people, you can rely on other people and they will help you. And, and I think that's just a, it was, that was a very positive message to take. Do you think that there's an element of fear that we need to get over in, in, in Western cities that, um, you know, maybe isn't so evident and we, we need to kind of overcome that fear? And actually, most people are OK. You don't need to be scared of them. I, th I guess that's the message. It's, it's more than most people are OK. And most people will naturally organise themselves in, into a system where they help each other. So, yeah, I think, you know, 100 and 100 percent, we, we need to get over a little bit of fear, actually, 
and and be excited about how amazing it can be to live in an environment in flux and and how exciting change can be actually i think we found that people in Accra are expectant and hopeful of change in a way that maybe we're fearful of it. And I think it's about, hopefully our exhibition's also partly about celebrating um, the productive forces of, of kind of immigration and migrancy. And, and that, that's absolutely what we felt in, in Accra. Is, um, there's a, it's a generative force rather than a negative one, which I think is probably part of the genesis of our wanting to go on this trip in the first place, is the feeling that we're in a kind of conservative moment here where after the general elections and and we yeah we wanted to throw ourselves into a different situation and you brought back lots of personal stories that you recorded out there we heard a, a little bit um have you got can you can you remember can you give us some sort of examples of people that you met that were really inspiring or their stories were really inspiring um well if, if you if you come to the exhibition we hope what we'll be allowed you to do is take a walk through the city with these characters as your guides and and there's three characters in particular we'll pick out, but one is um, a man called Isaac. Um, he's an 82-year-old photographer, um, and his father started the first photography studio in Accra, and sadly, Isaac's lost his sight, but he can still vividly describe photos that you hold in front of him just by giving him a few key clues. And the way he, the way he betrays the city is, I guess, I don't know if I'm learning anything from him, but to listen to someone sort of describe their, their lifetime was just a, a magical moment, really. So we invite you to tr- try that. <laughs> Excellent. So the, the exhibition is from the 16th, 16th of June yeah, yep. uh, until, the, until the Sunday, until the 19th. And that's Echoes of Acre. And then what else, Ken, have you got? We have got a pretty full calendar, really. I mean, one of the things we do do on a regular basis is the first Tuesday talks, which are in conjunction with PYMCA. And those are all talks by people that worked in the 70s and 80s, uh, mainly with subcultures cultures like uh, free parties and demonstrations and all of the things that used to go on so it's like a look at that they have a talk and a slideshow and you know we we get people in we uh, we have a good time <laughs> so have you got quite a strong community now uh, around the gallery of, of yeah. regular people that just come yeah, and, and it's apply. really it's it's really interesting like every show we have is 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 completely different feel and sound to it you know what i mean it's like uh, we 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 just get a new crowd every time we 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 have some like we've had we had a, a Japanese lady came in the other day and we're going to have an exhibition of work for a friend of hers who's um, who did a book called uh, Tokyo Rockers between 1978 and 1985. So he's going to come from Tokyo and do a show at the gallery and do a talk. So just people sort of roll in off the street and they go, oh, I want to do this or that, and then we just have uh, a lot of fun, you know, putting them all together and having these really high impact shows that usually last about four days open. And Saturday and Sunday, most of the day from 12 until 8. So it's a good opportunity for everyone to come. It's not like a sort of stretched over a month. It's like you come and get it now. And right. yeah. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So, Doomed Gallery yep. um, is 65 to 67 Ridley Road in Dalston. Thank you so much, all of you, for coming in. And um, yeah, the exhibition coming up sounds amazing, Echoes of Acre. So, um, looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. And keeping with the uh, migration theme, regular listeners will know that I've been collecting stories from all sorts of people about their arrival to London for a project I've been working on called Something to Declare. 
There's going to be a very exciting couple of live events uh, linked to this project in June, which I'll tell you about later. But let's first hear Aisha, who we heard a little bit by mistake earlier. Um, so we'll hear her again. And she's a born and bred Londoner, Londoner but um, her background's very mixed. My name is Aisha Lalu. I currently work for a social housing provider in East London called Poplar Harker, and I work in resident empowerment. I'm not from East London originally, but I am a born and bred Londoner, so I'm from South London. My mum is from Germany and my dad is from Mauritius. They came over when they were in their 20s and they met, they both were nurses. So my mum was only coming over for, I think, maybe four to six months to do a bit of nursing here and then moved to go to America. Uh, That didn't happen, so she's never left. And uh, my dad, he came over, you know, many people from Mauritius have come over. And I think he was kind of following that general migration. Uh, Family members were over here. I think he started off in Wales, staying with a family member. And he came over to London and he's a qualified nurse as well. Um, Neither of them are nurses anymore. Um, My mum is a yoga teacher. My dad still works in the world of nursing, but kind of um, a bit more of a high level and in kind of the private world. So my parents, you know, they were both nurses and they met whilst nursing in Bromley, at Bromley Hospital. They used to live, I think, in the same kind of nursing complex. And that was actually on this road called Tweedy Road, which I always remember because it's a really cute name. And we used to drive along it going to Bromley and and I used to live in Grove Park, so it wasn't very far. Tweedy Road is a ginormous road. And so we'd always drive along it and say, oh, well, when I, you know, I remember when this was like my house, I used to like sleep here is what I'd hear from my parents. So that's how they met. And, you know, my godparents were also from that circle, you know, kind of very close knit, small group of friends from that area. They're not married anymore. Um, they are now married to different people. My mum is married to an American guy, so, so we've got quite an American influence in our family. And my dad has married a Mauritian woman. So My dad wasn't recruited in Mauritius to come over to England as a nurse. It's my understanding that he came over as more to come over to England you know that's what people were doing that's where opportunities were family members were over here we we have quite a kind of extensive sort of family network within the UK lots of people have and subsequently more brothers have moved over he's from um, like 14 brothers and sisters that there's many of them um, although not all of them survived I think he was qualified in Mauritius but that wasn't his intention when he came over and they ended up in a hospital in Bromley that doesn't even exist anymore so um, it's very random really how they ended up meeting. I am bilingual I can speak English and German. I never really picked up the kind of French it's a sort of pidgin French and I never really picked that up for some reason I don't think my dad spoke it as much at home whereas my mum made a huge effort so she always tells the story that we um she was never quite sure it was working and then one day when we were quite small my brother and I we were in the bath and we were singing along to a German song that from a TV show or something like that. So we were always quite surrounded by sort of the German language, like things in the car. Um, we used to listen to um, a tape called uh, Pumukel, which was uh, like a little kind of rascal figure. We also went to German school in Croydon. We did a little bit of Arabic school for a while, but that never really took off. I think I think maybe kind of like it was so different, whereas German I think is a little bit easier. Muslim dad kind of Christian mother who loves every religion under the sun, especially now she's kind of very hippie, you know. It was a very kind of unusual upbringing in that sense. So I was brought up Muslim 
and I, I'm, you know, I'm married to a Jewish guy now, so you know, we just love everyone. Um, but there was there was a phase where we were going to Arabic school to kind of learn the Quran um, and kind of pick that side up. But you know, that was probably more, you know, parents going through divorce and trying to impose things on their children more than anything else. And and it wasn't for us. We we did it for a couple of years, my brother and I, but never really took off and Arabic is is tough you know respect to people who can do it because it's really really challenging I used to live in America for a year and I would say I'm from England when I was over there and they didn't quite understand that I think because they would assume that an English person was white um, and they would look at me and say oh well, where are you really from and you know they weren't asking where are you from they were asking you know what is your background and I always thought that was quite an invasive question when you first meet someone but in America that's a really popular question and it used to drive me insane um I really don't like that question up front I'm more than happy to talk about my background I think my background is quite unusual there's not that many half German half Mauritian people um, floating around out there but I think um I think it can be quite an invasive question I find it quite frustrating well growing up obviously with a German mum and a Mauritian dad did mean that there was a lot of interesting cultural things to experience plus growing up in South London in what was predominantly a white area and then we moved to a predominantly black area I definitely would notice different things so on the German side I mean we did Christmas and we always did Christmas the German way which is to open your presents on Christmas Eve it wasn't Santa Claus who came it's um, Christkind which translates to Christ child and Germany being so close we would go to Germany a lot you know my grandmother's over there Lots of German traditions around Christmas and kind of family time have really embedded themselves and definitely translate to what I do now, especially having a Jewish husband who never did Christmas until he got married to me. Um, and I was like, well, we've got to change that. You have to have an advent calendar and, and everything because, you know, we just need to enjoy it all. And on the Mauritian side, you know, there was much more of a kind of... The, Christmas was never a religious thing in my upbringing and... For the Mauritian side, there was more of a kind of religious overtone with Islam. So, you know, there'd be considerations of how to dress on certain holidays, you know, um, kind of modes of dress was never imposed on me. But I would definitely have certain types of clothing and we'd always be getting sent gifts from Mauritius that were always kind of strangely sized clothing for a young woman. And, you know, it would be so different to what I would wear. Normally, sometimes you'd open these packages and be not be quite sure why why am I going to wear this um, but I still have quite a lot of it and they're really very beautiful and they've become much more fashionable you know Asian kind of clothing and culture I think has become much more fashionable and like young women who wear these outfits now that they're, they're not like the outfits I was being sent 20 years ago that's for sure other cultural practices I would probably say is around food I would say kind of like Mauritian style of eating and um, especially when, when we went to like big family weddings I hate big family weddings now um, and I didn't enjoy them as a child, especially um, I was brought up vegetarian, which doesn't really suit well, either culture, really. And the Mauritian big wedding culture, big biryanis, and they'd be very confused as to why I was vegetarian. And interestingly, I'm the only one that's still vegetarian out of my mum, dad and my brother. You know, I'm the only one that held faith. I'm a real Londoner. Like that. That's how I... Um, understand my identity I don't think of myself as German I don't think of myself as Mauritian I barely think of myself as English I, I do strongly believe that England's very different to the rest of London and I don't even know if I like the rest of England I mean I do that there's a lot of really interesting parts but I'm very aware that London is very different 
and we my husband and I we've decided we don't think we'd live anywhere else you know we are Londoners so that was Aisha Lalu um, talking about her background, which is uh, very mixed, as you heard. Um, so I'll be setting up an arrivals bureau at the British Museum as part of uh, Moving Stories Late on Friday the 24th of June. And um, it will also be at Rich Mix uh, in Beth- on Bethnal Green Road on the 25th of June. June and this will be a chance for you the public to come and experience border control at our arrivals bureau and record yours or your family's arrival story to London. All these stories are then embedded into a map uh, featured on somethingtodeclare.co.uk and this is part of a whole load of events uh, around migration happening uh, all around the country during refugee week from the 20th to the 26th of June. Sounds great. Thanks, Pearl. So now in the studio here with us is Susie McKenna, uh, who's the creative director at Hackney Empire, which is one of East London's most iconic theatres. Susie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, So we'll take a a look in in a little while, uh, you know, what Hackney Empire's got coming up in terms of music, performances, theatre. I just wanted to touch on the history of the place. I mean, it's really stood the test of time, hasn't it? It was built in 1901. was a bingo hall for a time. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the Hackney Empire, and I uh, forgive me, I have to call her she because that's who she <laughs> is. But uh, the Hackney Empire, she's she's been iconic. She was built as a people's palace, as a people's theatre. Um, Oswald Stoll, who then became Stoll Moss Empires, the big sort of uh, theatrical entrepreneur and, and, and producer and agent. Uh, this theatre, he ran this theatre and... He, the idea was that this was a music hall. It was built as a music hall, uh, and it was there to entertain every demographic, from the from the wealthy to the working man, um, and has always had uh, diverse artists on 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 their on that stage. Um, the, the 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 whole idea of us being one of the most diverse theatres in London, and if not the UK, isn't just something that just sprang up and suddenly happened. This has been happening since 1901. Um, there have been black artists, all sorts of artists from all over the world um, have performed there. Um, so it started as a music hall, and then obviously shifted into what we would call variety now. Um, so people like Houdini, uh, um, uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin, um, and amazing sort of magicians and all sorts of things played there, and then it moved into sort of more twenties, thirties, um, went into people like Louis Armstrong um, a- a- appearing there, and some of the greatest. In fact, everybody who was anybody during the nineteen forties, fifties variety era, Morecambe and Wise, Tommy Cooper, you name it, they've played it there, and at that makes it extraordinary mm. to stand on that stage and feel all that history and then of course with the death of variety it closed and it came although it was open for both world wars all the way through right. burlesque and all sorts of ideas it then closed and became um a tv studio for a while um did um a show called oh boy and uh, you have to be as old as me to remember take your pick um with michael miles and shows like that and then um it then became a bingo hall and actually you know that the, the history of it being a bingo hall is isn't a lesser history because it again is about a people's palace it's a place where people came together mm. where where local hackney people came of all shapes sizes and demographic as it would have been then and and cultures and uh, 
to play bingo. And in fact, Mecca actually preserved the theatre because instead of ripping things out, they boarded over oh, right. uh, frescoes, marble staircases, you name it. And then all the boards came down again. Well, when, when finally Roland Muldoon and the left-wing company cast saved the empire from being... Uh, probably developed by the local council. They saved it and uh, it became a charitable trust. And then the work started, if you like, to re-bring her back to life as a theatre. And uh, and in fact, people would remember her mostly for comedy then. Mm. Um, people like French and Saunders and Griffiths Jones cut their teeth as young comedians on mm. the alternative circuit during the 80s. So it continued to be oh. that place where the names, you know, yeah, were Yeah, and also where, it, where, where new people, where, where you could discover people. And it mm. still is like that for me now as creative director. The whole point about our mission statement hasn't changed. The whole point is, is we will champion the emerging artist as much as we will the big top mm. artists that are coming um, whether that's Rudimental Pete Doherty or in fact um, a BAFTA winning playwright like Roy Williams mm. who's we're about to, to sort of launch his new play ourselves in, in a few weeks So what's what's uh, what are some of the highlights at the moment coming up then? Um, well the, the, the highlight at the moment we're just about on June the 15th we open um, our co-production with the Royal and Derngate Theatre uh, called Soul, written by Roy Williams, BAFTA award-winning uh, writer. It's a world premiere, and we're um, opening that. It's a story of Marvin Gaye, um, but not necessarily from the musical side. It's about the tragic side of his family and the fact that, of course, he was killed by his father. And it's very much looking into what that relationship was about uh, and what what Marvin Gaye's family life was about and how that influenced him as an artist and also, obviously, his tragic death. So it's... It, it, you get a real sense of Marvin Gaye, the artist, and him coming through from a young boy singing in church where his father was a preacher, right the way through in the first act to him becoming a big star. Um, but also the, the the focus of the piece is really about his family and how he um, f- basically supported his family throughout his career. Mm. Um, and and then, unfortunately, the second act, you see the last, if you like, uh, microcosm of time before unfortunately the tragic shooting happened and that's running until the 3rd of July that's right yeah. that's right there are still tickets available but it is selling fast amazing cast fantastic reviews um, and I can't wait to have it in our house I'm going up again to see it on Thursday um, in Northampton before it comes back down and just very briefly I mean theatre is in your blood isn't it I mean you, yeah. you, you grew up <laughs> around it you yeah my actress. parents were in the business my parents were variety artists so, so it seemed inevitable that I might end up somewhere like the Empire um, uh, they were a variety artists it's sort of towards the end of the as it was dying and I sort of was born in the 60s mm-hmm. uh, they were more from they went from playing theatres to large working men's clubs I trained as a dancer um, and then um, became and, and came back to London as soon as I couldn't live in Hackney immediately when I was 18 carried on living in Hackney um, and then became a, an actress in musical theatre um, for the next sort of 15, 20 odd years. Juggling it all with creative director. Uh, well, yeah, well, actually what happened was a, a, about 15 years into my career or 20 years into my acting and musical theatre career in the West End, like Cats, shows like Cats and 
and um, Chicago and other shows like that. Um, some fool asked me to direct something at Hackney Empire, and I happened to be living in Hackney at the time, and I, I loved the Hackney Empire. So there I was performing and directing um, my first show at the Hackney Empire. So to cut your teeth as a director in a 1,300-seater is a bit scary, <laughs> but we did it. I could chat to you all night about this, but we are going to have to leave it there. But uh, more details at hackneyempire.co.uk for all the listings and shows coming up. Yes, Susie, please. thank you so much for no, joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And it is time for us to say goodbye. Uh, we've been Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, we will leave you with a tiny extract uh, from Ruben Holliburn's track, uh, who played earlier on in the show. So good night and thanks for listening. <laughs>